0: Here. Great. All right. And um, so, Aaron, just I think everybody's read your bio that I put in okay. the invitation, Great. but why don't you just say a little bit about your background sure. like we were talking about?
1: Sure, sure, So I actually plan to start with that. So um, I have this little, hopefully it won't be too distracting, but so my, 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 my name is Erin Murphy-Graham. I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley, and I have been studying the issue of girls' education on and off. Really more on than off, though, since I myself was an adolescent girl. So at age 16, I went um, and stayed as an exchange student, actually, in Costa Rica. I lived with a family there and became very interested in looking at strategies. Um, I mean, I I wouldn't have called it this as a 16-year-old, but really recognizing inequalities that exist within the world and thinking about comparing my experience as a high school student in Massachusetts where I grew up with the experience that was available for most Costa Rican students, and Costa Rica is actually a very wealthy country, and that was why I was there because my, parent, my parents felt comfortable with me going to Costa Rica, but probably no place else in Central America at that time. Um, and so I did my undergraduate work, my senior thesis. This was I graduated uh, in 1998. Was on the relationship between investment and in girls' education and social and economic development. And then I went on to do a master's degree in comparative and international education with a focus on gender and education. And then I did my doctorate um, in education at Harvard and again studied um, really what is my area of expertise, which is we, we, through books like this, and I'll share just a little bit of motivation, return to this book, um, believe in the power of education. We believe in the power of education to transform people's lives. And in particular, the notion of education um, as empowering has become a a big buzzword. So what does that mean? What does that actually look like, right? So if you think about your own educational experiences, some of them may have been very empowering, but some may have also been very disempowering. So in my academic work, and I often work with colleagues, and this colleague, I think Cynthia Lloyd, came and spoke to the group Mm -hmm. um, a few years years ago. ago, Yeah, Mm -hmm. so um, I try to better understand what are the features of empowering education? Um, How can we make education genuinely transformative for girls, and really for adolescents, because I believe, and I'll mention this as I get more into my remarks, that um, we need to think about not only how do we improve access to education, but how do we transform the underlying gender norms and attitudes that result in girls' underrepresentation in education in the first place. Um, so basically using education as this transformative lever within society, not just within the lives of individual girls, but really to try to address some of those more deeply embedded social and cultural norms. So that's a little bit about me my background, and I'll, I'll talk more about this work um, if you're interested. I, I would also love for this to be as interactive as possible, like I could talk your ears off, um, but I wanted to also start with like, if there's an opportunity, did you come with any questions? Um, is there anything when you were getting here, when you were on the park, when you were coming over, um, or in your cars, did you, did you think, I'm really curious about this, or I've been thinking about this for some time, and then I can try as much as possible to address some of those. And then at any point, also feel free to obviously interrupt me. But any kind of thoughts that, are, that have you've been simmering with, or sitting with? Well, I mean, it's always how to make the how to have the greatest impact, Mm -hmm. right? What if there are silver Mm -hmm. bullets? Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, the program that I was talking about, the Mm She Can that I'm involved with, what really appealed to me was this idea that you were getting women, young women, education, where a lot of programs. Seem to serve the younger ages and kind of stop mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you really think that mm-hmm. real, you really become no, no, change agents. No, no. So, oh, sure. are there studies out there? Are there enough um, programs out there trying to help younger women mm-hmm. get the education they need? Mm-hmm. Um, how impactful that really mm-hmm. is.
0: I mean, my question is along the same lines Mm -hmm. as Elizabeth's of like, you know, my question is always Mm -hmm. how can we as a giving Mm -hmm. circle, you know, giving relatively modest grants, you know, how can we Mm -hmm. um, have the most impact Mm -hmm. and in a place where it really matters? And then Mm -hmm. the second question I have is just we've been hearing a lot about how for a long time it was all about access to education and now it's kind of flipped to be about the quality of the education Mm -hmm. and like what is what do we look for when we're looking at grantees? Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, we also have heard lately about social and emotional development yes. as, a, as an important
2: component, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering how you, what trends and patterns you find
3: for mm-hmm. that particular aspect. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm interested in like the um, the barriers mm-hmm. that sometimes prevent. Uh, mm-hmm. Girls from getting an education. So, I am on the board of a group that does um, uh, um, anti-rape, mm-hmm. uh, um, teaches self-defense. Mm-hmm. As way in the one of the maps, after they go in, the kids actually stay in school longer. Mm-hmm. But also, there's all the work around. Um, around pads, mm-hmm. menstrual pads, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those sorts of the other kinds of things, because I feel like mm-hmm. um, it's hard to know what, you know, with all these different solutions,
4: like which ones are mm-hmm. the most important, and how do you mm-hmm. assess what makes the biggest difference? Mm-hmm. Um, I missed a couple of people, because I was telling my son to fight down with the fortnight. <laughs> 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 um, so maybe somebody said something along these lines, but I was struck a few years ago when we were and girls. I was struck by uh, one of our speakers who said there has been until recently such an emphasis on getting girls to school, mm-hmm. but that it's it's clearly not enough because mm-hmm. the quality of an education mm-hmm. can vary so much. And, mm-hmm. well, and obviously what you're here you're talking about the potential role of education in right. power girls, so obviously this is something you're gonna to touch on, but it's yes. just something that has stayed with me ever since. I was yes. like, wow, it really doesn't mean it. Potentially means very little that the girl's going to school like Mm -hmm. it's better than not But by how much really can depend you know on many factors Mm and so that Mm -hmm. has always sort of stayed Mm -hmm. with
5: me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a
2: question that might be too tangential for what Mm -hmm. you focus on but I've read that in the US girls now outnumber boys in college and everything Mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't translate into meaningful
1: impact after school, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're still not you know, as empowered in the workforce, etc. and I'm mm-hmm. wondering, even if, if the focus is mostly on the developing world, if
3: there's any sort of lessons learned that could prevent that from happening yeah. everywhere? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 5 one more. Yes. <laughs> is there any research on what are the best practices or what it takes to teach boys okay. mm-hmm. in a less, mm-hmm. to create G- less gender, gendered mm-hmm. stereotype? I
2: thought you were going to talk about Sir Ken Robinson and the idea of like, what should we be teaching? And if we need, we can't kill creativity, that, mm-hmm. that actually the systems that we already have in place yeah. are killing creativity and what's the future going to look like. So maybe there's different opportunities for women, girls, mm-hmm. and their educational opportunities.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So can you also just remind me, you have three giving areas or four?
0: So we there's six areas that okay. we are kind of under the umbrella of our right. mission, but each yes. year we focus on a single area. So has
1: it been six years since you've done education? How many? I guess like how many years has it been since so the last education? I think cycle? it's
0: been three years okay. since the last education. Okay. Yes. This is yes. the third time we're doing education. Great. It's very really popular. popular. Yeah. yeah, we don't always cycle. We don't always cycle all the time. Yeah. Yeah. we yeah. Have yeah. still have we not done microfinance. And then yes. the last time I
1: feel like it was starting to shift a bit. And right. This time is the first time that we're hearing. It's okay. Not just about butts and seats or whatever. Yep. They call it. Yeah. Great. Okay. This is all helpful just because. Yeah. I was trying to think about what, what, is, what, it, what, what, what might be new and fresh for, for you. Yeah. So what I thought I would start with is literally like, the, how do we situate this within the global development goals? So this is an image that represents the sustainable development goals. And you can see the fourth sustainable development goal is quality education. The emphasis of this development goal is on the completion of secondary school. And um, it also, if you look like more carefully at what are the indicators of this, there is this idea also that it has to have, um, you know, gender equity as part of quality education. Uh, but then interestingly, that is followed by the fifth, which is on gender equality. So these two, they often mention as kind of being really deeply connected to each other. Um, so where are we? Where, is, where are we globally? So the United Nations Girls Education Initiative, which is, um, has the acronym UNGUIDE. Some people don't don't say it like that. Everyone has their own way of pronouncing it. But UNGAI does a report every year, which is their global monitoring report, and so these statistics come from that. So I didn't have to reinvent the wheel here, but I printed them as well because they're obviously language you You can see beautifully on this screen, but. Um, so what you can see, and I, I'm doing them in, in a somewhat different order than the way they're presented. So you'll see that table three, and then uh, I have table three, and then another one, and then table two. And the reason why I've done it this way is because, so what is the gender parity index? Gender parity index is essentially a, um, a representation of the percentage of girls that are enrolled in school, or, or the number of girls divided by the number of boys. Right? So if you had equal numbers of girls and boys enrolled in school, it would be one. Like we want to see a one. So you can see at the pre-primary, primary, lower, secondary, upper, secondary. And this is, again, this regional breakdown that most world regions are fairly close to one. And then you also see the phenomenon of actually this, the girls being at an advantage. You are starting to see this in some world regions. So if you look, for example, at Latin America and the Caribbean, in lower secondary schools, girls are slightly higher in terms of their enrollment. Um, When you get to upper secondary, girls are way higher. So that actually looks much more like the United States and the UK and Australia. So we do see this pattern where boys drop out of school actually at much higher rates. So if it's above one, then there's more girls? There's more girls. Okay. Exactly. And if it's below one, then there are fewer girls, and that would be the areas like Sub-Saharan Africa. You can see it's getting close in terms of primary school enrollment, but by the time you get to upper secondary mm-hmm. and tertiary, they're still. Can
4: you, uh, so I, I think secondary school, I think terminology is different in Europe than, than the US. Yeah. Can you tell us what those grades are?
1: So lower secondary, so primary school usually goes to grade six, okay. um, and then the lower would be like what we think of as middle, middle school, school okay and then upper would be what we think of as high school. Sometimes high school is only three years. It depends if they follow the French system or if they follow the British system. Um, tertiary is college. Tertiary is college, exactly. Or some sort of
6: post high school technical training. Yeah,
5: exactly.
6: Nice, super quick question. Yeah. So then like the countries at parity of, looking at the Eastern Southeast Asian uh, one and 46. Mm-hmm. So that basically means that some of the bigger countries are at parity or more but like if you look at I mean if it's like 46 percent of the countries are at parity does that just mean that some of the bigger ones have parity and there may be a number oh, How does that
1: that's really interesting I don't I don't I couldn't tell you you have to look really
4: clearly. okay sorry right that doesn't
1: really quite make sense that you could only have 46 maybe no that's no, so maybe so like, like the 40, biggest. well it could also be that 46 percent aren't exactly one ah but the others are very close to one got it okay something okay. like that right? All right. so um, but I think it's, it's very interesting, and I think it does illustrate this issue that we have to think about it beyond access. So then this next table that I have um, is one that would show us potential indicators of gender inequality in education by domain, right? So if we're going to look at indicators beyond just enrollment in school, so just beyond access, what do we want to think about? And this is kind of some new work that has been advanced in thinking about what would be domains of interest. We'd want to understand opportunities. We'd want to know about gender norms, values, and attitudes. We'd want to understand institutions outside of education, laws and policies, resource distribution, teaching and learning practices. And then the indicators are literally like, how would you measure them? right so how would you get at this so that you can have some sort of data that goes just beyond are they enrolled in school or aren't they enrolled in school and then the other issue that's becoming increasingly important is looking more specifically not at overall averages because they hide the full picture Mm -hmm. right because these are often very unequal countries right so you have like the united states you have you know massive income inequality and you have um you know, uh, very lumpy distribution of schooling. So here you see the data for the poorest males and females by education level region and country income group, right? So this one takes a little bit longer to distill because there's quite a lot of data in here. Um, But what you can see is that when you focus only on, um, on the poorest males and females, that you know, there's still p- quite a lot of um, progress to be made in certain world regions that when you only look at the overall average, you don't see the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think a lot of emphasis more recently has been about like really thinking very carefully about the targeting within countries. So where are the areas that there are still um, kids who don't have access to primary school where are they they, they, they don't have access to secondary school um, and then also even if you break this down further into the countries within these regions you have countries um, like Chile Peru who have you know very close to educational parity but then you have other countries like um, you know Guatemala Honduras where particularly in rural areas girls remain at a disadvantage so um, so these are the kinds of data that I think give you a bit of a global picture, and I definitely recommend reading, if you want like to really get nerdy and read that report, there's tons (coughs) of really interesting data, but the take home message is that we have to look at not just um, getting girls into school, but this idea of gender equality through school, right? So this is a really lovely image from that report that's talking about how do we ensure safe and supportive learning environments and thinking about what are the characteristics of the school, so we wanna understand um, how are teachers trained? Is there comprehensive sexuality education? Um, are they respecting regulations? So for example, are pregnant girls allowed to enroll in school? There might be a, a national law that says you have to allow pregnant girls to stay in school, but if the school is saying, no, you're sorry, you can't stay, then they're not respecting those regulations. Um, and then a whole school approach to um, to sex and gender-based violence, right? So. So that's, that's one of the, you know, the, the features of this overall supportive learning environment. The other is, of course, to think about what's the government doing? So um, what is the, what's the curriculum? And what do the textbooks look like? Um, what are these regulations and policies? Um, do they have gender-sensitive teacher education programs at a national level? And are they investing in infrastructure? So Carolyn mentioned the idea of menstrual pads. Well, in a lot of these countries, there's still no toilet Um, The classrooms still have roofs that they're they're leaking. So literally in the rainy season, kids cannot go to school. Um, And so, you know, this is another key component is just thinking about facilities and in particular sanitation facilities and then, you know, also just looking more deeply at, um, you know, what are the characteristics of students, what are the characteristics of teachers, all of which make up this, um, this supportive uh, learning environment. So, so this is a great diagram that gets at this kind of big picture. And then this one I think is just great because, you know, it's like on the one hand you have a lot of discourse in these um, national policies around equality, but then when you actually scratch the surface or open the textbooks you see um, that the images example might be extremely gendered still or you might have things happening at the classroom level where girls are assigned certain tasks like sweeping and cleaning and serving lunch and boys are you know allowed to play at recess so it's like really getting just kind of lifting the cover off that box to better understand what is happening within that context of the school so that brings me to this question of like what do I consider to be a genuinely empowering educational experience. And much of this work um, builds off of the research that I I published a book in 2012 that's called Opening Minds, Improving Lives, Education and Women's Empowerment in Honduras. That really looked deeply at this question through in-depth interviews and observation. And I looked at a particularly innovative delivery system for secondary education. So secondary meaning post-primary, so it's grades seven to 12 in rural areas of Honduras. And the program actually operates in a number of different countries. Um, And it's a very interesting program, but one of the reasons why it's been so fascinating for me to study is because it allows me to get at some of these deeper and more complex issues, not just what are the features of the program that I find admirable, but what does this program help us to better understand about what empowering education can look like or what relevant education in a rural context might look like, especially considering that in the rural areas of most developing countries is where kids are at the most extreme disadvantage and in particular, girls. So um, so my understanding of this is, is really um, that I think about the um, core conditions of empowering education to consist of physical material and social climate that's conducive to learning, right? So we have to think about these contextual variables that the the illustration also um, provides. Also thinking about value formation. So at the core of an educational experience, we have to think about values of the, um, the inherent dignity of all individuals and our equal worth with others. So those have to sort of be core conceptual values. And also, the, the third core condition is the notion of that we learn through action. That we can't just learn through um, like reading and being lectured at, but that we actually have to have um, active learning. And we get this really, we do this well in um, I think in the early stages in, in early childhood education, like a play based education system. But when you go to schools um, in that are poorly resourced, you see that it's like. It's extremely passive, it's very much, because they don't have any resources, right? So they don't have textbooks, they, often it's like one blackboard and, you know, so they're, they're, they're very limited in terms of what they can do. So the idea is to try to make learning a more active process. Um, and then we think about these different competencies, and this is where um, the question of social emotional learning might come in. So um, we talk about how the, the first, um, characteristic of empowering education is the ability to develop critical thinking skills and also have access to knowledge. So it's like, what's the academic content, right, that um, should be delivered in an empowering educational setting? And um, then another component would be the social competencies. So this is where we think about, like, what is the, what are the social purposes of schooling in terms of building relationships with others, in terms of developing, um, you know, what, what we think of as um, often psychosocial, competency. So those might be, um, you know, self-confidence, it might be um, empathy, uh, discipline, you know, a number of different social-emotional skills that I think are increasingly being recognized as extremely important indicators of later life outcomes, right? So some research in the United States suggests that it's these characteristics that are more predictive of your future earnings and employment and health and overall well-being than IQ scores alone. So we just think a lot of emphasis, and I think um, rightly so, on the social competencies. Um, The other would be the personal competencies. So this is almost like knowledge of oneself and personal care, like taking care of yourself and having self-knowledge. And then the final one is productive competencies. And this is, I can kind of go through each of these and what each of them looks like. But if you want more about the model and, and trying to think about how do we find empowering education programs that have these features, the goal of this work was that so many organizations are talking about doing the girls empowerment or empowering education. But when you like look more deeply, oftentimes they're only focusing on one or two of what we might think of holistically as empowering education. So this is really like an ambitious framework to think about how would we um, you know really, if we were going to design a program from scratch, How would we want to make sure that all of these features are available? Or just being much more specific about if we're thinking about empowering education then we really want to um, make sure that we're talking only specifically about maybe you know this is really focusing on the productive competencies. Um, and so by productive competencies, I'm talking about um, the ability to generate, to create, to produce, both in the economic and social sphere. So you could be literally producing goods and services, or you could be a product, you could be producing social change. So you could be like an activist in your community working with others to try to promote, um, you know, for example, the uh, elimination of gender-based violence. Um, so, so what, what we saw when we did, we did this work was in addition to theorizing, we saw that not very many education programs actually met all of this criteria. And also there's not very much evidence, like the question of what has the biggest impact. There's really not very much evidence that we could say these programs work. Because imagine measuring this. Like how would you come up with a measure to get at all of these different domains? So much of the research is only looking at one or two indicators um, that really we think of as just kind of one slice of how we hope education can can equip um, women and girls. So this leaves like a few questions and um, and areas that I hope we can kind of discuss more concretely and I can get, um, you know, talk even more about some of the, the, the questions that you asked and the questions that you posed. Um, but what we see, I think, are these, these questions around how do we, what will it take for schools to support both learning and empowerment. So much of the discourse around education has focused on quality. Quality typically is described as having three key components, uh, numeracy, literacy, and life skills. Um, But right now we only have measures of numeracy and literacy and the life skills field is another talk that I could give um, Because that is also like when they say life skills, are they talking about social-emotional learning? Are they talking about entrepreneurial skills? What exactly are life skills and how might education cultivate those life skills? Um, But what research has suggested is that despite all this emphasis to get kids into school that now we see what's called a learning crisis so this is the buzzword in Washington that I'm sure Stu could hear if he was uh, interacting <laughs> with his education colleague <laughs> at the Center um, for Global Development, formerly, and now at the, um, at the um, um, thank you, that's foreign relations. There's so much emphasis because what they have determined is that kids can be in school for you know, five, six, seven years and still not be able to do like, basic math or still can't like, write a basic paragraph or understand you know, some simple sentences. So this is a huge cause for concern, is to focus on how do we improve the quality of education. Um, what, what, so that has happened in some ways, I would say, in, it's, it's a parallel effort with efforts to think about these issues related to gender. Um, I think in the last 10 years, gender has in some ways taken a backseat to um, these efforts to focus on like, the basics, the educational basics of literacy and numeracy. Um, But when we think about like what really is the greater purpose of schooling, is it just to equip um, people academically and if that's the case for what, right? So what will their future be? Um, Because not everyone's going to be able to, you know, even complete secondary schooling because they might not have access or they might not want to they might not want, they might not feel it's worth it. So it gets back to these like very fundamental questions around how do we think about the purpose of school in society and how do we really understand those mechanisms by which school can improve people's lives. Um, and then what's the role of NGOs? Right? So you have the role of the state, which is very much focused on um, the in-school delivery of education, but you have NGOs that have emerged in some ways to fill the void that's left by the poor quality schools. Um, but the state is sponsoring. So you see girls' clubs, for example, girls' safe spaces. You see girls' leadership programs. You see all of this really interesting work happening in the NGO sector. But it's often not sustainable because it's not connected to the government efforts to improve the quality of schooling. So that's a big tension that the NGOs are doing this really innovative work, but often they're working with 10,000 girls in India, right? So it's like, well, that's great and that's a dent, but how do you scale that? How do you take lessons from these NGOs and actually embed them into the state system. How do we make sure that there's a symbiotic relationship and that what we've learned is working so well can be like part and parcel of the experience of every um, adolescent in school. So my like key takeaways in terms of what I think are some like areas that we could um, enter into a discussion about are Connecting interventions to improve the quality of education. So that would be efforts that focus on thinking about empowering education or life skills education. Um, what, are, what's the, what is the purpose of education? Like having a very clear understanding of, you know, are we focusing essentially on um, basic literacy, basic numeracy, or do we want also for there to be this strong life skills component? Because that seems to be what really matters. What we're seeing in a number of places Um, is that even if kids have access to school, they don't complete school, right? So um, studies from Latin America is a really, not only because I do research there um, and I'm really familiar with the Latin American context, I think it's almost a harbinger of things to come in other world regions, right? So because Latin America has been able to expand access to secondary schooling, Africa hasn't yet done that, we can look at the case of Latin America and say, what are some lessons learned? for Africa in terms of when it does, um, you know, expand educational access. So in Latin America you see that secondary school access has improved, but we still see very, very low completion rates from secondary school. And when you survey kids and you ask them, why did you drop out of school? There's economic reasons, which is fairly universal. So you know, a big implication is to have scholarship programs and conditional cash transfers and programs of that nature. But the second most common reason is that they no longer want to be a student. So, and that's for girls and boys. So that's very troubling, Uh, like what's happening that they no longer want to be a student? And in a paper paper that I'm working on right now, um, we're using this idea of um, it's very broadly connected to a theory of development that has emerged I would say in the last like 15 years, it's become uh, more common in um, thinking about when we even say development, what do we even mean by this, like what's our notion of development? Um, it's called the Capabilities Approach, and it was advanced by an economist called Amartya Sen, um, who won a Nobel Prize and authored a book called Development is Freedom, and he advanced this idea of thinking not just about per capita income as a way to measure well-being, thinking about what is a pe- person able to be and do um, and those are broadly defined as capabilities so um, we think about capabilities what could one do and then what are they actually doing as a functioning right so there's this kind of idea of what are your capabilities and what are your functioning so education should improve people's capabilities but that doesn't necessarily mean that that will translate into functionings um, because there might not be employment opportunities for example and this is exactly where I think there's still so much need to advocate for girls' education because it's the social uh, context that does not allow girls to necessarily translate the capabilities that they gain through education into functionings, right? So, so um, we see that girls might have higher rates of participation in secondary school, but they don't have um, higher representation in tertiaries or in STEM fields or that they still are, you know, we see this, this huge wage gap or that because there's no childcare and there's still very strong notions that a woman's role is as the mother and the primary caretaker, that women basically figure out, because they're really smart, why am I doing this? If my, I'm gonna wind up you know, being a mom and I'm not gonna have any opportunities to work outside the home, I don't know that I wanna go to school every day. It might be kind of nicer to not go and to stay home and school's really hard and sometimes the quality of their primary education is terrible so, get to secondary schooling and they have no idea what's going on and they know they're behind and they feel ashamed because they don't know what's going on and so they drop out and it's it's not just because of economic but it's a, a number of these different converging factors so we call this idea the conversion factor like what are girls actually going to be able to convert their schooling into that will make it worth it for them to stay in school and that's again where the discussion of quality education is so important because we want to make sure that schooling is not just about this like imaginary academic preparation for some future world where they're gonna apply stuff that has no connection to their lived experience in their daily lives. Because really what we see and this Ken Robinson is I think a great um, uh, sort of champion of this idea that, that we're still using a model of education that is completely outdated, right? Like we're still following this model of education that, was, that came from the enlightenment, that was like in, in line with the industrial revolution, that was like factory model of schooling and we have kids that are, grouped by age and there's you know, one grade per um, that age and then you progress through the grades and it's a factory and, and it's like wait, what are we, you know, just kind of pausing and rethinking, like what are we doing in schools and how can we create a curriculum that is actually responsive to the context where kids live? Um, and so, so that would be one point, is like really thinking carefully about this issue of quality education and all those various factors that I mentioned. Um, The second is why a continued emphasis on girls. So this is where I feel in the last few years, I mean, when this, so this book was written 10 years ago now. It's 10 years old. (laughs) So that can make us all feel old. So I got out my well-worn copy of the book um, and was looking at it in the BART to think what, you know, what do I, what did I dog year 10 years ago? Um, I had my students read this book and do like a book review of the book. So I know it fairly well. Um, but what's so interesting, and so I'll just read like one excerpt which um, is about uh, empowerment. So um, they say empowerment is a cliche in the age community but it is truly what is needed. The first step towards greater justice is to tra- transform the culture of female docility and subservience so that women themselves become more assertive and demanding. Um, so the single most important way to encourage women and girls to stand up for their rights is education and we can do far more to promote universal education in poor countries. So you know this is a very powerful message, but my critique of this book has always been, that, and, that, and that's fine, because that's not their role, they're not education, they're advocating for education, but they're very vague about like what kind of education, what is that education, how do we ensure that education? So 10 years later, what has started to happen is I would say a little bit of a backlash. right? So in countries where you see that there is not a gap in enrollments, um, that there's pushback on gender. Like why are we still talking about gender and how did we solve this issue? Um, so I think there's, there's a clear response that's needed. There has to be like a very well-articulated response to that um, and to say that we know, we know from research actually the Echidna, Echidna Gibbon, who I know some of you um, heard Erin Ganju when she spoke. Um, so they actually commissioned some research that was done by, you might know him because he's now at the Center for Global Development, um, I think is his name is Dave Evans, so he was at the World Bank and he's an economist who has written some really interesting research on education in sub-Saharan Africa and other um, world regions. And what he did was this analysis to look at the evidence base to understand whether um, there was an added value of girls' education strategies or whether what's good for girls is good for boys. And the evidence largely supports the idea that what's good for girls is also good for boys. And so the idea of like girl-only interventions might have lost its luster to some extent, and um, that we really need to think about uh, strategies that can improve the quality of education, for example, for both girls and boys. So that is an emerging trend that we see is this pushback. And that is why I think it's very important to think about what continues to place girls at a disadvantage? Why do we see girls continuing to um, not advance in other domains in life? Um, And I think the call, and this actually is talked about also extensively in Half the Sky, which is the lack of access to sexuality education, comprehensive sexuality education, and the lack of access to birth control. Um, Because once girls have kids, it really changes their life trajectory. So I'm just gonna (coughs) exit out of this for one second to share um, so this article came out, there's, there's, it's really interesting in The Economist, um, and I was really excited about it because my work more recently has focused on, um, on how to prevent uh, teen pregnancy and child marriage in Latin America, because what we were seeing in our research was that Um, Girls were dropping out of school, not only because they were pregnant, but they would drop out of school. And then once they had dropped out of school, they would enter into unions as early as age 15. So this article, which is hot off the press in The Economist, talks about, um, you know, what's happening. And uh, so a third of Latin American women can expect to have a baby before reaching the age of 20. A higher rate of teen motherhood than any region except sub-Saharan Africa. And people don't even think about Latin America as a region that still should be like meritorious in receiving, um, you know, aid support, like DFID, for example, the British Department for International Development no longer funds Latin America. Uh, It's graduated, right? But then actually when you look at some of these issues, it's really, really interesting. Um, And and I I definitely just highly recommend this article and we can return to it if you want to look at some of the Um, implications, but one of the things they talk about is how difficult it has been to introduce comprehensive sexuality education in the Latin American context. And what they also say, which I completely agree with, is that NGOs are basically the only organization in this context that can work to make sure that kids have access to comprehensive sexuality education because it's such a politically controversial topic. So governments don't want to touch it, politicals don't 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 want to touch it, the church can't touch it. So, you know, this is like a real space where NGOs are the only ones that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so important.
2: Is the emphasis on, on educating girls? Girls and boys. boys.
1: Okay, yeah. Girls that's and boys. And that's like another point that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah. So, you know, sex education is almost unheard of in Chile's state schools, Mexico, presented I mean, you can just see that, uh, you know, there's so much need, in fact, so much so that, um, this was uh, recently published by UNICEF, Latin America and the Caribbean, a lost decade in ending child marriage, right? So you see that um, girls access, and we've done all this work to to have access to education, and we actually see, if you look regionally in that region, that um, there are still higher rates of participation, but uh, still the same proportion of girls is getting married before the age of 18. So that's, that's like, I mean, I, obviously I'm like, I'm a little biased because that's what I'm doing my research about, but I feel like it's such an important issue and to connect it with education, like to formally connect it with education because what we saw was that this world of early pregnancy, child marriage, it was all in public health. And the schools are really now positioned as an excellent way to address these topics head on. So even if, you know, the comprehensive sexuality education might be light, for San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, where we have a different understanding of what comprehensive sexuality is, it can still be this basic understanding of how does your body work? Um, you know, what, because you know, we were finding kids who, like, their parents had never talked to them about menstruation. I mean, every time I go and do research in Honduras and we started to talk about these issues, it was like girls got their period, they had no idea what was wrong with them, they became hysterical because they thought they were dying because they didn't know what this was that was happening to their bodies. Um, and so there's still so many taboo topics. And you know I, I just feel so strongly that this is like such a basic human right to understand. And if we're talking about life skills, even if you know the idea is that you'd want to promote an abstinence-based curriculum for sex ed, which all the research suggests doesn't work, but I personally feel is the only way that you're gonna have access to sex ed in these contexts is to have an abstinence-based curriculum. I think that's totally fine. I think it's culturally appropriate. I would say abstinence-based is still better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this huge divide of people who work in sex ed who are like, no, abstinence only is a waste of time. And it's like, then, but then they're never gonna be able to actually work in these settings. So culturally relevant comprehensive sexuality education is super important. But I think if we're actually talking about life skills, the vast majority of people go on to become parents. So why aren't we talking about what does it mean to enter into courtship with someone? Like how do you get to know of someone? How do you know that they're the right fit for you? Um, how do we know when we're ready to have a baby? Like, how would we plan? How would we, like, re recouping the idea of family planning? Like, in that general way of, like, let's plan this. Let's just not leave it up to chance. Um, I think all of these are really, really important ideas. Um, and so I think there's some innovative work that's happening and would, like, definitely encourage you to think about ways in which you might be able to support some of those efforts.
6: Um Can I ask you a quick yes, question? Yes, of course. Um, is it a lost decade in that there were more... Girls or boys and girls going to school, but the, as you said, the rate of teen pregnancy remained the same. Exactly. So you were expecting exactly that more education, it would go down. Exactly. Okay, and it didn't. Okay, and so um, in
4: addition to what you've just talked about, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to get off topic, no, so, so you I'm can sure. say no, I'm not not answering yeah.
6: this. But are there other forces within those countries that um, are prevailing upon um, teen pregnancy? You know economics violence um, health other yeah, things that are almost like subs- or over yeah uh, overriding
1: <laughs> <laughs> other things yeah I mean so I think there's no data to support what I will say okay, okay so what I will say is that what you have what, and, and then and they, they identify Latin Latin America is the only country where you don't see the trend <laughs> Um, okay. of increased schooling, decreased, okay. like and if you looked at like Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, you see the trend the way you would expect it. So Latin America is the exception, but again, is it the harbinger of the future, mm-hmm. right? Because overall it started with lower rates yeah. of pregnancy and um, child marriage than in um, Southeast Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa. So what, what we hear is that, you know, how sexualized pop culture is.
6: Okay, interesting.
1: Right? So, you know, if you watch any music video, um, and you watch, you listen to end, the lyrics of any hip hop song, it's, you know, it's super highly sexualized. So kids are having sex earlier. Kids, kids are having, sex, the initial, first sexual
6: activity is, is younger in these countries. Because I would have thought, you know, like back in the day, it would have been, oh, there's more violence. There's a yeah. lower, uh, no. uh, people aren't living as long. So then you start to have kids, more kids, or more kids earlier. But what you're saying is it could be completely different. It could be, the media and exposure to sexuality at a younger age.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, knowing Latin America as well as I do, do. my father lives there, you know, my kids, my daughter spent time in Chile and stuff. There's just a big failure in Parenting 101. Yes. I mean, it's, it's really like kids are, the pop- what they see in popular culture is the only education yeah. getting. they're not getting any sort of yeah. foundational anything at any socioeconomic level. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, and it's so weird because everybody's, they're all Catholic and they're all hypocrites. Totally. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. exactly yeah. to having, they're going crazy, having tons of sex, but the parents c- can't see it, don't know, eyes <coughs> closed, you know, so it's just, it's just a really bad combination. <laughs> But isn't the um,
2: rate of teen pregnancies amongst um, the Latin American mm-hmm. ethnically Americans here high?
1: Lower? No. Isn't it going down? It mm-hmm. might be going down, but it's still very high mm-hmm. compared to uh, other Puberty parents. low. Doesn't puberty in starting earlier, sorry, earlier, in both Latin American um, <laughs> populations and African American.
2: <laughs> and safe to say that culturally <laughs> in these countries, the whole notion of teen pregnancy is pretty much seen as a female issue? Like the boys yes. are just oh, yeah, yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no yeah. sense of like, we, we have to prevent, like I always say like, it takes two people to get okay. pregnant. Like we mm-hmm. can't put this on girls. So that's actually one of my other points is that we need to think about the role of men and boys um, in becoming champions for girls in becoming the future fathers and the future husbands that can allow their wives to continue to study, to work outside the home I mean, I think these cultural norms are one of the major forces that is really stymieing girls in terms of where they can go in the future. Um, I mean, there's also a huge lack of opportunities, right? Like they're, they're, there's not much that they can do, right? They're, 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 the communities they live in are, you know, resource constrained and the transportation system is terrible and, um, you know, there's really bad, telecommunications, like all these things that you would hope would exist so that people could have future opportunities don't exist in these communities. But still, the culture um, and the cultural norms are very strong. So there's, I think there's a, a number, we've done a lot of research on like, what exactly are these norms? And we've done it in Brazil, we've done it in Honduras, and we have um, colleagues who've done the work in Guatemala. And there's, and this actually, The Economist article also picks up on this, which is that motherhood is culturally celebrated. Mm-hmm. And it should be, right? It's like Motherhood is an amazing experience. And so what the girls say is that they gain social status by becoming moms. And so that is a force that's very important. You don't want to negate that, but it's this question of like, in time, you too will become a mom. So that's one cultural um, issue that's happening. And then again, these very strong notions of like, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean um, to be a woman? And so um, in, uh, in one, con- one household, I was conducting an interview and I was talking with um, it was the uh, the mother-in-law, and uh, because often what happens is these girls will go and live with uh, with their partners. They don't actually enter into a legal or um, religious marriage that's just a common-law marriage, because nobody has money to actually have a proper like marriage with a ceremony or with a party or anything. So it's something like 90% of women in rural areas of Central America are in common-law marriages. Um, so, the, in this conversation, she said, esposo querría, esposo tiene. Which is like, basically like, she wanted a husband, now she has a husband, and that's that. Like, that's just the end of like, she's not going to school, this is, now, this is what she has now. Like, this is what she wanted, this is what she has, and that's that. And so, you know, basically these girls, as young as 15 years old, would be going to school, sometimes they just stop going, maybe they were gonna go back, maybe they weren't gonna go back, then they enter into this relationship and they wind up you know, having sex, and that basically means you're married in some of these contexts. It's like once you begin to cohabitate and you begin to have sex, that's, that's your esposo. And so, um, then, you know, from that moment on, you're, like, responsible for basically taking care of your husband. Like, you do all the cooking, you do all the cleaning, you do all the laundry. That's your job. That's your role in life. And then, you know, pretty quickly the kids come because there's no access to, comp- uh, to comprehensive sexuality education. There is access to birth control. There is access to condoms just about everywhere. Um, but again, the male norms are such that they don't use them. It's not ever mentioned as a form of birth control um, in the context where I've been working. It's really shocking. It's really quite shocking. Like I I, I often leave and I'm like, why won't the men just wear condoms? <laughs> like life would be so much easier. Because you know, the delivery mechanism for female contraception is much more complicated, right? Like you have to go to a clinic, you have to do something every day, you have to have an injection. You see more long-term, um, long-lasting um, contraceptives. But again, completely decoupled from any education. So it's like people don't actually understand like, why does a common prevent pregnancy? Why does a birth control pill prevent pregnancy? Why do you have to take? there's no like, understanding of that because that whole scientific side is completely absent. So, yeah. what? Okay. So you answered it. I was okay.
0: going to say, <coughs> well, if there was more emphasis on providing contraception to women,
1: but obviously yeah. it's a lot more difficult. It's, and it's just and the power dynamics fine. in mm-hmm. relationships yeah. mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. right? Like all that thing about intimacy and trust. And so yeah.
3: What was the, uh, your book was based on a program in Honduras, Mm -hmm. Uh, what was the program?
1: So it's a, um, the program is a, it's a secondary education program. It's, um, it's essentially in four countries of Latin America. So it started in Colombia and has spread to Honduras, Nicaragua and Ecuador. Honduras is the most interesting case of it because it has a full partnership with the government. And it's basically a new way of, I can, again, I'll talk your ear off about that if you want me to, but it's a new way of thinking about um, how do we conceptualize education in a rural area and how do we connect it more with, um, with development. Like, really, what are the goals of development? So it has a very strong emphasis on agriculture, on community participation, um, and trying to build, really, to build a new type of rural community. And what we've done more recently is to take some of these insights around everything that I've shared with you to actually design a curriculum. So my next point, so that I don't get too off topic, but um, design-based research and design thinking. So uh, you're in San Francisco, so I assume you've like heard of design thinking and you see it everywhere, yeah. (laughs) So design thinking is, it has kind of spilled into this research, which is around like, how do we work in partnership and in teams around the creation of just like you would have a designer have you you sit in this chair and it would be beautiful and you think about how it's comfortable, not just in designing products, but literally in designing interventions. Um, So we work with a team of the researchers in uh, UC Berkeley, myself and a a doctoral student who's from Honduras have worked for a long time with this NGO. Um, that implements this secondary education program that's very innovative and wonderful and has had you know, international recognition and has won awards and everything, but it still did not have enough comprehensive sexuality education. Like it had a lot of content on gender equality, but I was like, but where are the lessons around you know, contraception? And it was like, no, we don't do that. Um, and so we've worked with them to literally design an intervention and that intervention, we're, we we're pilot, we've, we did a prototype and we piloted it and then we refined it and then it has a strong parental component, right? With like, we, we realize it's not just about getting the kids but actually teaching parents how to talk to their kids. How do you have these kinds of challenging, what you think of as a challenging conversation with your adolescent kids? How do you stay connected to them? Because we were also hearing that the kids were like fighting with their parents and so they just ran off. And so it's like, how do you, maintain that love and that connection, even during this turbulent period of adolescence. Um, so, so this, I think there's real promise in not just um, thinking about like impact, because impact is very difficult to measure. Like when you looked at these indicators of gender sensitive, um, like enrollment's easy to measure, but some of these other things are really difficult to measure. <laughs> So then you think about maybe it's not just about measuring impact, but really starting mm-hmm. from the ground up in designing the kinds of solutions that we know, or just having that design thinking and that design research approach, um, which is not like, so for example, I'll say with, um, with regards to menstrual pads, there's really not a lot of evidence that's, that shows that providing um, what I call it wash. Um, so it's, uh, I forget now it's water and sanitation, I forget what the H is, hygiene water and sanitation hygiene. Um, there isn't a large body of evidence to say that that works. But again, maybe maybe the, the interventions have not been designed to actually meet the needs of girls and women who will use them, right? Maybe that was about the delivery mechanism. Um, so I think it's like when we think, we have to obviously think about impact, but we also have to think about really designing with communities these kinds of interventions. Um, and then the other two points that I would say just before I close are, um, I still think there's a great need for thinking about teacher professional development and innovative um, ways to do teacher professional development, not just with regards to gender, but just with this idea that um, you know the, the preparation that teachers receive is just really not not good. And so you wind up with these abysmal learning outcomes. So if we want to have education really empower girls, I mean we know they need access to quality education and we want that education to, be delivered by teachers who can you know have some training in gender sensitivity to be able to disrupt these cultural norms and you know address machismo or address these um stereotypical notions of manhood and so this is so key is the teacher professional development and yet you know we, we don't see it's like not a sexy topic right it's just like who wants because it's so hard but it's so important and so that's another key thing and then um, again, there's these great uh, new like models and I can show you them if you're interested in thinking about intersectionality. So when I say intersectionality, in other words, we we'll be thinking about just like, what are the different dimensions that marginalize girls? So there's a framework of educational marginalization, which is basically like, what are they, what are, what's the context? So like we know, for example, that rural girls um, are more disadvantaged or girls from much larger families are often at a disadvantage because they have to care for their siblings. Girls who are ethnic minorities, girls who do not speak the like major language as their mother tongue, so indigenous groups um, in most countries. So we know that those are features of the context, and then we have to think about you know the geography. Like, are they far from school? Are they close to school? All these different features that might place girls at a disadvantage, um, and just having a better understanding of those can also help guide and inform our efforts. Because I do think that we wind up with like saturation in specific regions or specific countries. There's like um, and this is just, again, based on my travels and seeing, like, you know, I was in Uganda last year and seeing, like, there's NGOs everywhere there. Um, you know, Guatemala is another example. You know, when I go there, I'm like, okay, I know that there's a large population in Guatemala, but there's a lot of NGOs in Guatemala compared to Honduras um, and, uh, and Nicaragua I'm not as familiar with. Um, but yeah, so it's just really understanding, like, how can we think about um, these intersectional issues that maybe, especially if you don't have millions of dollars that you can invest, like, how can you target, um, you know, the giving that you will do to make an impact? And I think part of that is like, what's the niche? Like, what's the niche that's, you know, more complicated, like comprehensive sexuality education, where, you know, people don't wanna touch it because it's so controversial. Or, you know, really thinking about innovative models for teacher professional development, because we're just finding that the state can't do it. Like, the, the public system can't do it, so we need to think about working with NGOs that are doing teacher training. And then also to think about sustainability. Um, so those are some thoughts. So hopefully, hopefully these were gonna generate discussion and conversation. So, so
0: why can't state do teacher training? I mean, that seems like something they could do. I, I kind of get why they're not getting into the comprehensive sexuality yeah. education.
1: Because they have a very, they, they, so I keep talking about this Ken Robinson video. So I don't know how many of you have seen this Ken Robinson video, but um, you know, it's really difficult to break the mold of what we think good education is. And so, you know, the people who are in these positions of power are replicating the educational experience that they had. Um, and so, because that's what they know. That's their point of comparison. So that would be my response, is that they still believe in, like, rote learning and memorization, and they've, they've never had that experience. So part of why the teacher of professional development is so important is they need to have that active learning. They need to actually
4: model it. Yeah. So the, this is kind of a weird big mm. picture question. So here in San Francisco, my kid, kids your yep. kids attend um, these, you know, very progressive liberal private schools. While well, our exchange student is at a school that is 60% Hispanic, the quality of education is really low, mm-hmm. but he's still, we're in San Francisco, I mean, he comes home and he's just learning amazing things in an American history class. I mean, he's getting those same... Uh, values, you know, even if even if the tests aren't very hard, and so when we're talking about like professional development for teachers uh, in these other countries, so a kind of an intriguing question for me is I'm not sure that at the private school that my daughter attended in Santiago, that any of these values are being taught there either. It's a very conservative society. So is there any thinking of like actually maybe? working with the public schools that are actually also possibly in affluent areas because these are the places that eventually yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. create, yeah. They're, they're the ones where the ideas generate right. and where the ideas yes. flow out from. Yeah, right. so, okay. yeah. yeah I, think, I think that's, that's
1: not a, um, uh, so, okay, I, knowing my limited understanding of the context is that those kinds of schools are trendsetters. Right so right. if you were to identify like what are the five top schools in Santiago and how do we do teacher training in those five top schools right. and then how could that potentially trickle down or like through training those people maybe they then become trainers and the, okay. the, the, the the things shift and things change I I I think that is something that should be tested like people should study that because when you say it to me intuitively it sounds very plausible um, I think that unfortunately, there is also the possibility that the sec- like the sectors just don't intersect at all, right? Because the mm-hmm. societies are so segregated that's that too. you could hope, well, right. trickle down economics, it might yeah, stop. like it might <laughs> not, it <laughs> might, <laughs> might <laughs> but it might not. Well, that's down work. Working.
6: <laughs> 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 that's well, I like your idea though because it could be the policymakers' kids. Exactly. So, that, that's what I said.
1: <laughs> so so for example, I was in India this year, and um, and i was i met informally just because it was like this you know friend of a friend who was at this school and it was in this community outside of new delhi that was like an hour away it was sort of like an enclave of houses and because you know delhi's like so cramped so it's basically this place where like upper middle class families lived and they had school there and the school was all staffed with these really interesting people who had come from you know there's like american families who were teaching there and um and I thought to myself, this is really interesting because you could see that they're experimenting with what? Trying to um, not emphasize scores on the college entrance exam. Like they were saying, like, we care about the college entrance exam, but we actually care about all these other things, which we feel the college entrance exam doesn't measure. And they were basically saying they were trying to school these Indian parents to buy into that um, kind of logic. And also there's this really interesting network of schools in Peru it's called Inova Schools and it's um, been started by this very wealthy entrepreneur who's in the telecommunications industry. He has started this big network of them in both Peru and now they're in Mexico, working with Carlos Slim in Mexico. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's gonna be big, it's gonna be huge. And what they're trying to do is low cost private schools and they are using design thinking and they're really interesting. They're private though, so they're again, like will this weaken the public sector? Um, but I think they are trying to say like, we're not just going to do this old school, get you ready for the, the entrance exam, because many of these universities have them, but we are going to focus on creative thinking and this, that and the other. It will be very interesting to see what happens there. And I don't know if anyone is researching it, but, but I, do, I do think that is a potential strategy by which to influence, because there, it's, it's really like a mentality. It's, and I think this is what we've seen also in Honduras with the work we're doing with this innovative delivery system. 20 years, we've been saying, like, here's all this evidence that this is the kind of program we should be replicating, we should expand, we should invest in. And it falls completely flat on government ears. Because when they hear alternative or innovative, they they assume it's of worse quality because what they want to replicate is like the urban high school that they know.
3: Right, well, in my experience in third world country schools, rural schools, Mm -hmm. is that the teachers are not... Like, if you have a brilliant sage on the stage lecturing and doing rote learning, and they're brilliant, it actually works pretty well. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen is a lot of these teachers, their own education is not there, and so it's it's almost bizarrely absurd. Like, the kids are chanting things. Yeah. The teacher's saying things that don't make sense and the kids are exactly. chanting yeah. and learning rote learning things that don't actually make sense either. Yeah. And so it's like, oh my god, they're following rules all day to gather things that those that wasn't a fact. You know? <laughs> and that didn't actually make sense. <laughs> and that math problem yeah. doesn't add up. Yeah. That's not that's not what the you know, so yeah. It's really it's super staggering. So so I, I was just reading
2: an article, this was kind of interesting, an interesting and unintended consequence of what's happening with the um, immigration uh, rules, that there is an increasing number of um, Mexican American uh, students who are returning to Mexico, yeah. right, in really large numbers. Mm-hmm. And they're they, they they've been going to school here in America for, you know, mm-hmm. for their whole lives. And now they're returning to Mexico mm-hmm. and having to learn a new language that mm-hmm. they didn't really mm-hmm. speak. And in a school system that they must be sitting there going, why, why are we doing yeah. this? This is <laughs> fast backwards. Like,
4: yeah.
2: could there be you know, some glimmer of hope that some of these younger generation people who are there are yeah. seeing the, mm-hmm. you know, the abysmal differences between, yeah. I mean, if there's any
6: mm-hmm. silver lining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> okay. um,
3: what about the other organizations that are
6: not directly education, but trying to tackle these issues? So mm-hmm. like Right to
2: Play mm-hmm. is using sports, soccer to get at AIDS, mm-hmm. and yeah. any
1: of yeah. these things, Girls on the Run yeah. would be an example here, but yes. there are lots of people trying to get at it in a non-traditional mm-hmm. yeah. education. Yeah. So Do you like any of those? Yeah. Which ones should we I, like what, the the one I like that? them all. That's the problem. I like them all. So so I, um, so I have, for a few years, been involved in a research study on a um, sports-based life skills training mm-hmm. program in Latin America. So I personally believe, and this is not just a personal belief, but also based on all the research evidence that I've seen, that sports is a potentially powerful mechanism to empower girls. And that mm-hmm. I believe PE is like a completely lost opportunity in schools. Yeah. Um, to, to address some of these gender issues, right? So just the, the very act of like forcing boys and girls to play together, um, to cooperate, because the other thing you see is these, uh, like, and this happens everywhere. It's like happened in my, my, my own eight year old daughter will not play with the boys. She's like, there's no girls in the after school. I'm, like, play with boys. They will make fun of me if I play with them. Right, like, are, we somehow have really gotten this wrong. And so like PE and the opportunity to like force kids to play with each other, I think, has a real disruptive potential. Um, and I'm very encouraged by research uh, evidence about the, um, the potential effects of, and I also just think it's like, they need to play. Like, again, it's like, what's the purpose of, of education? It's not just academic. It's like, how does this enhance our, our life? And you know, we all have physical outlets, right? Like some people like to hike and some, I mean, you know, some people like to ski, maybe not <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <snow shit. laughs> but it's a really important part of well being. So, if we think about education for life, then we should think about what are we doing in schools to not just cultivate an appreciation for, you know, numer- numeracy and literacy, but also these physical activities. So, so I think that's really important, and again, another role that I think NGOs can, can work in. Um,
6: so... Anything uh, else like that besides
1: sports based? I mean, yeah, is there a music based one or there is a music based one. Or I think sports, Yeah, there's sports. Easy. Yeah, universal. I think I think um, I've seen arts based. Um, these are more difficult to replicate than sports. Mm-hmm. What, right. Why? Because everybody already plays sports. Yeah. How about
3: music?
6: Yeah. Yeah. Music is pretty good. Music, you need instruments.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. So oh, dance. Yeah, dance. Dance, I think, could be really cool.
0: Ooh, especially in Latin America.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think dance could be really cool. I think dance could be really cool. I've I've always said, you know, it's funny because my son does taekwondo. He does taekwondo with the UC martial arts program. So I'm like, we gotta get the Koreans to come and do martial arts because taekwondo is actually extremely uh, mixed gender. Like all the kids do it together. And it's can you imagine like impo- I mean how empowering for these girls to learn the blocks and the kicks and I'm like, well, can we please get some Koreans to, and they, they do it already. Like the, my son's teacher who's from Korea speaks fluent Spanish because he spent a year in Guatemala. And so the Koreans are also already in many of these countries. Um, and there's, you know, little pockets. I'm like, we need to, like, I'm like, get Samsung and get this people and like, let's do the tunnel You know, like I did, I like plant the seed. All the Koreans I know, I'm like, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. So far, it hasn't caught. so if you know anyone,
3: <laughs>
1: I'll send you my cell phone number because I think this is like so interesting. I think there's a lot of potential. The question is like, what are the resources? The arts-based programs that I have seen all tend to be fairly like, they reach a very small number of people. They don't have some human
3: resources. Um, so sports just seems to be like a little bit easier. Yeah. What do you think about Wendy Cops' new venture um, what is it called? Uh, teach for All? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, anything she does seems to be really huge. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: so I, I have not seen much data on it, so I don't know. I think, um, so I think it's, the question is like, what's the time horizon? So I think short term, there's an urgent need to have more qualified teachers internationally, globally. Long term, we need to invest in high quality teacher education, right? So like, if you look at Finland, for example, which has the best education system in the world, their teachers are super highly educated. And so it's like, if we really want to think about how do we improve the quality of education, the answer to me is this like, highly, highly professionalized teaching uh, professional development, right? Like it's- When they're paid. And they're paid well, exactly. It's a respectable job, and they're highly respected. It's It's like that's the that's the answer to me. It's like we have to figure out as a society. So the idea of like uncredentialed, unqualified,
3: because is is it the same model? The same model.
1: It's uncredentialed. Super, Super, yes yeah, exactly. That's exactly that. Turn someone into a teacher? No, I think
3: it's like, it's good. It could be good. It could be like,
1: again, these are these are going to, it could change the, the awareness, for example. Like when you go to a country like Honduras, like no one in the city has even been to these rural areas. You know, they don't even have any sense sure. of their own country. So I think there's a lot of potential benefits to it. Again, it's like, do I think that it's the long-term solution for education? No. Do I think it's a good idea? Yes. Would yeah. I personally
3: fund it? It's just seeding, probably yeah. more modern teaching. Yeah, it could be professional yes. development, probably. Mm-hmm. I would imagine it's mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I had a question. A couple so. questions,
5: actually. One of them um, just on um, on sort of uh, technology, which you
1: didn't. Oh yeah, that, but, technology. Yeah, that's a good yeah,
5: one. It, it, it's, it's sort of. You know You yeah. think that um, technology? It's sort of changing pedagogy in terms of yep. you know distance learning. Right. You know, yep. you know massive online courses, et cetera. But you can also imagine, um, and obviously there have been gender differences in terms mm-hmm. of short uptake of different types of technology mm-hmm. and sort of learning through, you know, mm-hmm. different types of applications. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder whether or not there's any findings mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. Be, because of a, a lot of these places, that, even though they're quite poor in many mm-hmm. cases, the, the penetration of, um, of sort of cellular telephones or right. you know, mm-hmm. smartphones mm-hmm. is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there are ways of getting around it. And I was also thinking of, you know, Latin America, wow, you know, telenovelas but geared towards girls' education which could conceivably be something different. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing was really on on um, on sort of thinking about rural-urban mm-hmm. distinctions. And you mentioned India. And In, I don't know if it's like the United States, but, you know, here education policy is so state-based. Or yes. So locally based. Yes. So jurisdictions. And so to some degree, any interventions you're going to have to do are going to have to I mean, depending on how federalized mm-hmm. the system is, are going to have to not necessarily be going only yeah. through sort of the local ministry of education, a national ministry of education, but actually, you know, whatever the, what yes. the de- 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 department department mm-hmm. department or whatever yes. the, uh, in the country.
4: Yes. Great questions.
1: So technology. So I thought long and hard about this. Most evidence shows that um, investments in technology are very expensive, and they do not have a very large impact, right? So like they did this big experiment with with, with one laptop per child, yeah. um, and they were they did not have good results. So what I think the data suggests is that technology can assist. No, nope,
0: I'm sorry. I'm doing that experiment in my house as well. One last <laughs> it's totally not working. Okay.
3: <laughs> sorry.
1: Um, so I think there's two roles for technology. One is the administrative side. Okay. So like, take using technology to track attendance, for example. I think is like phenomenal. Right? So instead of like manually doing attendance sheets and sending them to some central office for another person to compile, um, like I think the EMIS system in interventions with technology for the education management information systems mm-hmm. is something that governments have to invest in. I don't think that's the role of civil society, but if you were like World Bank, I would be like, get it, you know, do these EMIS systems because so much time is spent pushing paperwork. That we have cell phones that we can use to say like these are the number of students who showed up today do better tracking have like a warning system like this kid hasn't come to school red flag go visit the home all of this like super super use of technology for learning improving learning outcomes that's where it's harder to make the case for the investment in technology and so um you know we've seen for example uh distance education programs that are satellite based in brazil which i think actually have some promise so you have these excellent lecturers who are based in a regional capital who then have tutors who are in local communities who can answer questions but you have a a live expert teacher delivering content knowledge um that is a model that i think people are starting to to um, embrace for regions like the Amazonas, right? Where you have water levels rise by 20 feet. And so there's like literally no accessibility to these communities. Um, so that would be like a technological advance that I think has been, you know, identified as working quite well and improving learning outcomes. Devices, you know, laptops, readers, all this, uh, software, that's where it's still not clear that, I mean, because if you think also, like I keep saying like, how about just books? Like, how about books as technology, right? Because when we think about it, like, what is technology? How do we even define it? Most classrooms don't have access to books still. So, like, I think, wouldn't it be amazing to actually just have have some books? That's actually a pretty good starting point for technology. Or to think about, like, maybe kids get cheap readers so they have a lot of, but they still need, like you know, like we were saying before about how kids don't understand and it's all piecemeal. And one of my favorite activities is to sit with kids and um, have them go through their notebooks because they often have these notebooks where they've taken notes. And so I say like, let's look at it. Let's see what you're learning. And it's exactly like you say, it's like, they'll say, oh, this and I'll say, well, what is that? And they'll say, I have no idea, none whatsoever. And then it's the next page and it has nothing to do with the page before. And you're like, okay, so you went from this topic to this topic and you know,
3: what is this one? What do they
1: do? They're copying? They're copying or they're, yeah, they're literally just copying or um, you know from a board or yeah. So, so I think the technology question is one that the, the, the tendency now is um, to think about uh, technology. I guess there's three functions for technology. One is the, the, the management of information. The second is to improve um, learning in you know, different areas. And then third is just learning to use technology. Right, so like becoming fluent in how to turn on a computer, how to you know type a document in Microsoft Word, so that you don't have that technology gap. So I think it's like very important to think about which area of technology are we referring to, and then with regards to the telenovela um, as like a form of uh, of education, I I think it's actually really interesting. So like there's an amazing organization that's um, based in Nicaragua. And the person who was one of the founders is a neighbor of mine in Berkeley. And they use the telenovela to try to challenge gender norms mm-hmm. um, and to challenge sexual and, um, and domestic violence. And so I think this, like, they call it edutainment. Um, so educational entertainment is like super interesting and has a lot of potential in like, you know, developing interesting, people still listen to the radio. So like, can we think about podcast series? Um, can we think about interesting, like even messaging through, you know, like I've said, like can we work with the major telecommunications companies in these countries to do free text messaging around some of these social issues that we're hoping to promote? And Like who knows someone, who knows someone who could, you know, get this kind of work done? Um, so I, I think there's a, a big role for that. And then with the rural-urban distinctions, remind me the question was? You no, know, I, I guess,
5: yeah, I don't want to monopolize I just. Oh,
1: about the state and the decentralization. Yeah, that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. So you might have a lot of strong central support, but then if, if funding is local, then you have to think about all that as well. But the teacher training is not local.
5: Mm.
1: The teacher training is not local, right? So there are like, major institutions that do the, the teacher training, and that's where I think you can really have an important impact.
6: So, do you feel like the core thing, like textbooks, is a significant issue in, at all school levels or at certain?
1: Like, that's just such a. It, it would really depend on the country. Yeah. You know? um, and so it's, you know, and it's like, again, like I don't know if you can take on that issue. Mm-hmm but it's an important one to know about right and like so for example there's a San Francisco based organization that you should know about the World Reader that's what she was Yeah was yeah. 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 yeah I think it's amazing I think yeah. it's a great initiative like I don't know if there's any research but when I heard about it I was like yes Well, like, the I'm thing, fully on board
0: Well the thing about them is that they 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 have the data on what people are reading and not reading what girls are reading what boys are reading what books they start what books they finish that's like all of that stuff and they can take And the problem I see with just books, although I, everyone knows I love books, but um, but it's hard to get the locally relevant books in, yeah, you know totally. bo- especially in African, like all the specific languages, so exactly.
2: well, they put effort into doing that you yeah, if you could get the technology, the, the access, the training, the like ability to power up, and that kind of thing, yeah. and then you could
1: have textbooks more current right. and everything.
2: Yeah. even in American, in our schools.
0: Like, yeah, it's like having a library at your. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, and I think what we're finding too. also is that there's still like you have to think about how to cultivate a love of reading. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's great if there's already a love of reading, but if you have kids who struggle to read, who don't want to read. You know, like it's like, how do we think about creating that scaffolding? And there's still such a need. And then also this idea that, like, the reader, a lot of people that I know still prefer; they mm-hmm. still want this. And there's something that is like, yeah. you know, I'm still like, I gotta write all my ideas down with my hand because it's just how my brain works. So is that
6: generational? Just, does it? it's it's so generational. No, no, no. Because yeah. yeah. I think there actually has
0: been research that when you're actually physically writing, it's encoding yeah. in your brain the, in there a different is way.
4: Research, but... Research, it's totally gross. generational. Yeah, right? you I do mean, not this want to think this to the
1: type, type of technique. Technique. Yeah, Never yeah. but but yeah. you can't type it. You're, you're typing it. Is it still right. Right. A, fair a fair thing. Thing. but you can but highlight. You can, you can highlight, you but words. you're not. You can't you can. generate text. So I think the idea is like, yeah. you need to also be generating text. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. whether yeah. it's your own notes or something, you have to have some place for annotation. And this idea that you have, you know, workbooks basically, like this idea of the question and you write some things, and it can just be for basic reading comprehension that you do through that, like very basic kind of phonics that we knew and grew up
0: with. Just one other thing I wanted to mention is I know that from, I read the World Reader annual report, like I've been a supporter for World Reader since the beginning, so I know a lot about the organization, but um, in their annual report where they did their first major research on the results of their work, this really supports your point about the comprehensive sexual sexuality yeah. education. Because what they found was that girls, in particular, and women were reading a lot about sexual health mm-hmm. and a lot of things. Because think about it, like that's not something that you want people to see that you're reading. It's private when you're reading on a Kindle or on your cell phone. And so that was actually a big topic that people were right. reading about. That's great. So it really I think supports exactly, what you're saying. Like, I,
1: this is exactly what I think is not so like, powerful. They also
4: found that women in general read more. Like yeah, six yeah. times as much as that. Um,
0: but also a lot of romance
2: novels.
4: Yeah, <laughs> Which is great! I feel great! Yeah, <laughs> right. to the children of Emma. <laughs> yeah,
2: really, of course, weird norms. Yeah, they do. They, the they idea do, that's true. true. OK, that
1: word's bad. You're right, OK. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's this program
6: at Stanford. I've worked there for a while on staff. But um, it's called the Hollyhock Program. And you are mm-hmm. talking about that, and you may be familiar with it. Um, I don't think so. Okay. Um, they bring uh, teachers who are uh, relatively new in their tenure that are working in like really tough school districts, you know, this, those places that are, have super high teacher turnover mm-hmm. and such. And they bring them together um, on scholarship mm-hmm. um, and they learn how to teach. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, they create, a, it's a, a cohort group mm-hmm. and they get mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, to basically help them stay yeah. teaching in those places mm-hmm. and at least from what I understand the program has been successful at least in keeping mm-hmm. those teachers longer than a, the average teacher would stay mm-hmm. in those districts. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about that and thinking about then this notion of your mm-hmm. teacher training mm-hmm. in other countries and I'm going to combine that with mm-hmm. another idea about technology like what do people have. Right. And. Um, you know, if they have a cell phone or they have okay. a basic text message, mm-hmm. is there a way that maybe mm-hmm. you could do some sort of hollyhock-like Sorry. light, okay. but like, you have like, I know that there's, you know, so-and-so yes. in the next town over, totally. and we are right. like, sometimes we vent, but yes. oftentimes yes. we're just actually yes. sharing knowledge, yes. okay, are you already, anyway. Yeah, let's... well
1: I think it's really interesting, so we call that the formal term is the professional learning community. Okay. <laughs>
6: Right? So the idea is that
1: if teachers are embedded within a professional learning community, this will improve their status, their sort of job satisfaction and the system of support, improvement, mentoring, all of that. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those kinds of support systems are very effective. And there's programs that are trying to have that as a component of their professional development. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's really
6: important. I guess I would imagine that like like technology, technology and all that is really... And then maybe, but though it may be hard to implement if it's a very localized yeah. environment, or, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe if you're all in the same town and you're all yeah. collaborating, that actually might be mm-hmm. good. I don't sure. know. Okay, cool. So as one sky, like as we're thinking about like things we could grant to, mm-hmm. like I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of like what right. would be impactful, you
0: know? Well, I think, I think there's been a lot of, you know, things about the that where you've talked about things where NGOs really are the only ones who can do it. So to me, the ones that stick in my head from so far are the comprehensive sexuality education and yeah. some of the teacher training things in particular um, and possibly some of the, um, you know, sports-based, you know, type things. Those are three that jumped yeah. out at me from yeah. this talk.
1: Yeah, I think um, the, comp- the, the innovative ways to couple comprehensive sexuality education with schools in particular, mm-hmm. like to try to like Im- improve those relationships, to, to come up with models where it can happen within schools and that, that it can then diffuse. The organization Promundo, I think, is a really fascinating organization. I don't know if you've heard of Promundo before, but it's a D.C.-based organization Um, it is, um, the organization, I think it's really the the only organization that's exclusively focusing on issues related to, um, changing notions of men and masculinity, promoting alternative notions of fatherhood. Um, so Promundo is really fascinating and they also do research. Um, they, uh, have a, a number of like country offices, um, and they are always interested in opportunities to expand the kind of work and they, they again with that very strong emphasis and they do teacher training they have an online teacher training um, course that's specific to gender and um, preventing gender uh, based violence mm-hmm. so I would definitely check out Promundo I didn't want to come with like these are some organizations that I think it's important for me to come with the concepts
0: yeah but if you don't like I'll call you afterwards and
1: <laughs> <a concept>. If yeah. Culture, it's if, if music and TV's and, and tel- telenovelas and romance novels and yeah. all of that was reinforcing healthy yeah gender parity yeah, parody yeah. And, yeah. T- totally doesn't yeah. but wouldn't it be great if it did? <laughs> what
3: was it's the organization the of your neighbor?
1: It's called um it's called uh, Puntos de Encuentro. Puntos de Encuentro. And it's Peru or? And it's Peru? Nicaragua. 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 Um, <coughs> so yeah, it's like you know what are so I can definitely I can give you a list. But uh, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to think about like what are the issues that you feel like really passionate about if it's masculinity or comprehensive sexuality education or both or what that might look like. Cool. Teacher professional development.
0: All right. A good option. Any last question before a couple of housekeeping things?
3: Mm-hmm. Carol, go is there any evidence that direct like teaching gender parity to girls and boys like you just go in and you, like um, my yeah. husband runs an organization in Uganda and. And he was starting to train, train. He he hired this woman who to go around to all the rural schools and give feminism lectures and yeah. do like a lecture series on. On. Um, she wrote two the, the boys and girls. Or just two. I think she gave them to both the boys yeah. and girls. Yeah, but I just wonder. I don't know. Is there evidence for that? Like, let's just hit hit it straight yeah. on the head. Yeah, and I mean, talk about I it. think that's that's the idea is that that has to be part of what happened right? Mm -hmm. Um, And
1: that there can be like conceptual change that happens as a result of exposure to new ideas, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, huh, I've never thought of that before. Like, huh, like I've never heard of vegetarianism before. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting way of being, right? And so once you've heard of it, maybe you study it more and it changes the way you think about eating and consumption or whatever the case may be. So huh, never heard of feminism before. That's an interesting idea. And then maybe some people do like think, yeah, I do believe men and women are equal. And I, I just had never thought about my assumptions that I'd never thought about society. I mean, I'd never thought. So I think again, it's like maybe, but I don't think we can expect that like one lecture is enough to make a no. big. But I, I do think that, you know, the, the exposure to ideas, like I actually did become a vegetarian because I went to a presentation in Seattle in 1993 on Earth Day,
5: and it was like, literally I was like,
1: I've never heard of vegetarianism. This sounds fascinating, I guess. I don't really like meat that much, and maybe I'll learn more about it, right? So I I, mean, I think you could find evidence that for some people this can change their mind, but is it like a sustained strategy for changing cultural norms? It's a piece of it, right. a very important
3: But are there a lot of, I mean, I know this, is, his yeah. was very <clears throat> Like one-off kind of oh, yeah. thing. But is there, are, there, are there programs which are directly like we are teaching we gender parity straight up
1: and this uh, is our focus? Or is it, it always feels like... So a yes, <coughs> yes, I think there are. From. But again, that the strategy would be get it into the curriculum. Like do that and get, yeah. the, get the government to adopt it. So I would right. say right. find an NGO that's trying to do that, but also trying to get the government to take that curriculum and actually put it into whatever is supposed to be the national curriculum. Because how many schools can you visit in a year? Mm Yeah, that's the challenge.
0: All right, I want to thank you.
1: Great,
3: great, 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 great.
0: Um, Great. And.